My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Sean Gold is founder and CEO of Pilgrim Soul, a mission-driven cannabis brand focused on optimizing human creative performance. But before he went off to do his own creative thing, Sean had established himself as a tech marketing maven at weblogs, MySpace, Textile, among others, before moving into the cannabis space as CMO of Lowell Herb Co. and consulting for MedMen and Charlotte's Web. Along the way, he's met people like Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, Mark Cuban, Jason Calacanis, and many more. He collects jokes, loves aphorisms, and has published a book, a creative thinking journal, to be used specifically when you are high. Like his brand, its mission is to help people unlock their innate creativity through cannabis curriculum, content, and community. It's all engineered to optimize human performance around creative thinking. Full disclosure, we're old friends and go back to the early days of the NYC Silicon Alley tech scene, so any signs of over-familiarity are well-earned. Welcome, Sean. David, I've been waiting to be on this (laughs) podcast. Finally, I've done something worthy of it. I know, right? You put out this book. It's please use this journal while you are high. Creative thinking journal is out and selling quite well, I understand. When did you start to think about cannabis and creativity as a primary field of interest? Well, I'd like to say that I had the idea to start this company when I was 15 years old, but uh, it was a bit far-fetched. A cannabis company focused on creativity. I mean... Who would think I've been using cannabis for creativity for many decades and some of the ad campaigns and things I thought up were definitely inspired by or was a catalyst for tons of ideas. Cannabis is it's a second opinion and it's truth serum. It's a way to gain really considerable empathy with my target audience and, and a much deeper focus and The long answer to that short question is really decades and decades I've been thinking about it. When I was at Lowell Herb Company, I was thinking about putting together a special blend for creativity. And I got together with Willie Mack and Notorious B.I.G.'s son, C.J. Wallace. They created this organization called Think Big. And to promote them, we created this creative blend. I gave them different strains that index high for creativity. So I smoked them and ranked them. We blended three different strains, put it out, gave a portion of the proceeds to the California Prison Arts Project, sold like 10,000 packs in a week. And we only made 10,000 packs. So I really saw that product market fit was there. And that's when I decided to leave the company and start Pilgrim Soul. Before you started Pilgrim Soul and you were working in all these different areas, did you have to hide your cannabis consumption? Was it a stigma in those days, even though you don't, you know, everybody knew you were 
a hard worker and you were able to do your job at the same time, but did you have to hide it for the most part? Yes and no. I, people always thought I was high. People thought I was high all day at work all the time. I mean, I was chief marketing officer of MySpace and I've had some pretty big jobs and people are like, aren't you just like high all the time? And the truth was, I'm not high all the time. I never get high at work. I would get high like after work. Sometimes I'd put all my ideas together, like four o'clock, I'd go to the gym, get high, put the decks in front of me on the elliptical machine and just start like factually meditating. So people just assume I'm high, unfortunately, even though when I'm not, I must be something about my personality. It's not something I promoted and especially when I was in more corporate jobs the stigma <laughs> was attached to me if it's a stigma at all what about your co-executives your cohorts at these places were they similarly also hiding it yeah in those worlds that you have that traveled through is it like some people do some people don't because we all know tech world we've heard so much about microdosing and experimentation with psychedelics people smoking it's a very different world today than it than it has been even five years ago. People were definitely more in the closet on their drug use. Michael Pollan's book really opened things up and made it acceptable and really opened up the world for microdosing. I hardly know anybody who's not microdosing in the tech world. Forget microdosing, but dosing, dosing. It's a real shortcut to big ideas you know, if your brain doesn't work that way and you don't have this engine, then you're not necessarily going to have big ideas, but it will certainly open the aperture for what you have. So people will be like, I did acid and I didn't discover the key to the universe. Well, you know, maybe you know, did you figure out how to, I don't know, change the oil in your car? I mean, you know, there might be some, something else that comes that helps different people, but some of the biggest thinkers I know are definitely using psilocybin and LSD to go places that they haven't been before. Well, we, you know, in the tech field, Steve Jobs famously took LSD. It's always been kind of in the air, but recently it's yeah. become a lot more prevalent. So why did you start with this book? I know you also have a website, which I think is really cool too, because it really is about creativity and cannabis is part of the conversation, but it's not entirely about yeah. cannabis. You're not talking about strains. You're not talking about the actual product for the most part, from what I've seen. You're, are you establishing this whole other level of awareness and thinking with regard to cannabis? Unlike, you know, wellness which is subject people talk about in connection with uh, CBD and THC. Right. But that's not your field. Right. Traditionally, there's been recreational cannabis, which is to just get high and screw around, and there's been medicinal. What I've been trying to do is create this purpose-driven recreational category where you get high to, as we said, optimize human creator performance. Probably don't need to put the word human in there, just sounds better, so I say. <laughs> so the reason I created the journal, I'm working with some of the top cannabis scientists in the world in California, these guys, Abstracts Labs in Irvine. We looked at hundreds of strains that index high for creativity based on survey data. We made 3D models of them, modeling the terpenes and cannabinoids. We looked at secondary and tertiary states like focus and energy and other areas. And then 
we've created these five different blends for four different states of creativity that we're launching with for the cannabis brand that comes out this month. It's creative reflection, creative imagination, creative awareness, and creative focus, which are definitively different types of creative thinking. We can get into those, what they are later. You can smoke my creative imagination blend and still think about your ex-wife or your mortgage. There's no guarantee that you're going to have a yeah, that's boom, right? Yeah. Headspace is really important. The creative experience is 30% science, 30% placebo in, in that you need to be in the right headspace and believe in the experience and 30% curriculum. So the journals that I created are kind of guardrails on the experience to help ensure that they're going to have a creative focused experience. And there's four different sections of the journals that correspond with the four different creative blends. And there's creative exercises that are fun and whimsical and really created for someone who's high, meaning there's not a lot of instructions. It really dumbed things down, made them kind of really inane and funny to think about easy to accomplish. You know, instead of writing a poem, I ask you to write a horrible poem. Anybody can write a horrible poem. Instead of writing a great joke, I say, you are one of the worst joke writers in the world. And you found a partner. You're, you're so, such a bad joke writer. You're known for how bad you're joking. They're, they're actually good. They're so bad. Um, and now you found a partner. That partner writes the setup and you write the zinger. So on the page, there's a bunch of different setups for jokes and you have to write a bad punchline. Now, if you're terrible at jokes, which most people are, you can't fail. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're great at jokes, then you can also be good. You, know, you can write a great joke. So You can write a great bad joke. You can write a great bad joke. So there's lots of mechanisms in this. And we, we give you the exercise. And then we tell you why it helps. Because sometimes these exercises are like so ridiculous that you're like, how could that help me cre with creativity? Like, as an example, one of the exercises in the book is in the creative focus section. You are the coach of your kid's peewee basketball team, and you're up 10 points at the half, but you bet heavily against them. Write a halftime speech that allows your kids to lose with dignity while you trash your own. It's kind of ridiculous, but the, what's happening there, the mechanism is this really manipulation through storytelling. You have to empathize with parents and the kids and society, and there's all these things going on while you're creating a manipulative narrative to achieve a certain goal. I can't tell you why you're doing this ridiculous thing, you know, in the paragraph. And then we give you examples inside the book, which are usually kind of funny, like, go for three-point shots, go for five-point shots. It's also a self-help book in that respect, because you talk about people in business who may not use cannabis at all in some cases, or just not think of it or know how to use it creatively, because they're not artists who are painting and smoking or listening to music. There's these ways traditionally that we know enhances the experience of listening to music, for example. I don't know anyone who could say that it doesn't enhance their experience in that respect. But then there is somebody who might be uptight or in some ways feels like he needs to do something more. Totally. Yeah, 100%. Artists, graphic designers, musicians are a very, very small percentage of the people I'm talking to. There's a great Twilight Tharp quote. Creativity is not just for artists. It's for a salesperson looking for a new way to close the sale. It's for a parent trying to open their kid up to new possibilities. 
There was a book that inspired me called Rise of the Creative Class, written by this guy, Richard Florida, Carnegie Mellon professor when he wrote it in the year 2000. And he talks about the creative class in America are scientists, educators, computer programmers, engineers, people who are paid to create and innovate is really like this prime thing. And he argues that we've gone from an industrial age to an information age to a creative age where our economy is really propelled forward by creativity and technology. So things like Tesla, you could argue, is mobile art and technology. Or Instagram is obviously self-expression and technology. Peloton would be content and technology. That's kind of the primary group. And then there are people who are just creative problem solvers, like lawyers and finance people, people who look at things in a different way. And those are the people who certainly stand out in their job and have job security. It's like, as an example, if you're a lawyer, let's say you're in the year 2020 with the future of AI and outsourcing and all these other things coming together, your job will probably be done by a computer or someone in Asia, unless you are a creative version of a lawyer. Yeah. So as the economy changes to this kind of knowledge, knowledge economy that's not based on manufacturing, uh, right. I'm a fan of that Richard Florida book as well. And he was also arguing that that's the future of the cities are going to be the hubs that are catered to that kind of right. uh, creative uh, sensibility. I'm not sure if that's going to hold up now, you know, given where we... we COVID? <laughs> something like that because nobody quite knows where we're going to come out of all of this. The idea being that the economy of the U.S. is no longer dependent on manufacturing. We know that. We've been suffering for that. And now we need to come up with new ideas in order to do all these various things that are in front of us to do. Riffing on what you just said about places and city, you know, places for creativity, I'm going through the college application process with my son and he has access to all the information of the world. He's an engineer. He's applying to the top engineering schools in America. And the kid has curiosity and drive, which are the base qualities for innovative, creative people. And, And I'm not really worried about him being successful, even if he doesn't get into these schools. Like he just has those qualities. In all the research I've done around creativity Being in those centers really helps. Anywhere you are, you have access to all the world's information. But the thing about these centers of creativity is that they are important. We both moved to New York City and the serendipity of that place and the conversations. There's so much creativity that just came out of every day because creative people were there. As much as we like to think it is, information is not distributed evenly. It's clumped, you know, kind of in different geographic nodes. And some environments have a greater density of interaction that provide more excitement and greater effervescence around ideas. So MIT would probably be that for technology. New York City would be that for art, or at least it used to be. So it's really interesting how environment, you know, I've been reading a lot, studying creativity and environment really is important when it comes to creative stimulation and idea generation. I wonder if anyone has done any studies yet on the cities that have legalized and seen if there's any results of more creativity, quote unquote, you know, how you measure that is a whole other question. Is there evidence that Colorado is is doing a lot more creative work than uh, before it was legal? Well, evidence suggests that unusual and beautiful surroundings 
you know, help us <laughs> see si- <laughs> help us see situations more holistically and from novel points of view. Spending time in like a beautiful natural setting seems to how you spend the time in that setting also matters. If you're observing, that's great, but walking around and exercising and having a simple activity while your subconscious mind can be stimulated is also really important for the creative process. Yeah, totally. Taking a walk is is one of the most stimulating activities anyone can do to just let your mind roam and, and see where it goes. Taking a walk and smoking a joint is even better. Even better. (laughs) We could all agree. There's also research that homes that are rich in meaningful symbols make it easier for the occupants to kind of understand who they are. And then really understanding that baseline helps you generate more productive ideas. That book, The Artist's Way, is pretty much all about really understanding who you are to extend outward from that and be more productive with creativity. There's a lot of different aspects of creativity and stimulating that. When you were going around telling uh, your story of what you wanted to do to your world of acquaintances, friends, family, partially to raise money, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. and also just to tell them what you were up to. So what kind of reaction did you get? Was, Was it like... What are you, who are you kidding? You know, it's interesting you say that because when I was raising money, for the most part, it was difficult because I was talking to finance people. I went into some meetings, even at MedMen, you know, they had a fund and I pitched the idea to their finance guys who were running the fund. And they're like, you know, I really don't think there's enough people buying cannabis for creativity. And I said, I said, you guys are 100% wrong. But let me just ask you a question. Did you ask any of your buyers this question, the store buyers? Because if they said that, I would have been shocked. They did not. This was their own opinion. There was a couple different groups of finance people who just didn't get it, didn't understand it. They were potentially even looking at people who might go into a dispensary and say, do you have anything for creativity? That's slightly relevant. You know, you can't ask for, you can't walk into a dispensary and see things that help you with creativity right now. They're innately there, and a bud tender may you know, take you to strains at index high for creativity. But it's almost like you can't ask for an iPhone before it's available to buy. So there's a bunch of people, I believe, with this particular brand that are going to go in and say, oh my God, I can tap into creative you know, awareness, creative reflection, creative performance. This journal can help you do that. They can't necessarily imagine a product that doesn't exist. So... That's one aspect of it. But there was this one particular investor, a guy named Eric Lindbergh, who was at a company called Lion Capital. They bought brands like Jimmy Choo and John Barbados and All Saints and Kettle Chips. I talked to him about the idea in 30 seconds. He was like, I'm in, put 100K in. I mean, it was the most obvious thing he had ever heard. So if you get it, you know, you get it. And then, um, you know, so it took me like, well, we had this cannabis recession that happened in the middle of raising money, which is very analogous to the 1999-2000 internet collapse. And then we had COVID. So it took me about 18 months to raise a million dollars to start this brand. I had spent a lot of the money along the way. In COVID, it was difficult to launch a cannabis brand. So I launched the journals first. And 
In the last four months, I've sold about $2 million worth of journals, which was way beyond. I expected this to be sort of a break-even proposition that would help promote the cannabis brand. And it's really taken a life of its own on. And without a question, it showed product market fit, not only in California, but across the USA. Over 20,000 people have shared my advertisements and so many people are coming back talking about their experience with the product. It's really a very charming and delightful experience. I took it serious in creating the journal. I, I borrowed content from IDEO and, you know, this book called Tinker Toys, which is a classic and gainstorming and some of the classic ideation, brainstorming, creativity resources. And I put them together and made it much more whimsical. But I did not think in any way that people would take this journal as serious you know, as they have been. It's been pretty amazing. Yeah, congratulations. Are you interested in celebrities, endorsements of your products, like an Einstein or an Elon Musk brand or something that would connect the brain to the product? I'm working on one with a famous Black comedian. I forget if I'm allowed to talk about it or not. I think there's probably some kind of NDA in there. Let's just assume because he's famous. But I just signed the deal yesterday to do the next journal as a collaboration. And we'll get into like his thought process and where he gets his creativity from. It'll be more like creative thinking, funny thinking. I haven't really just nailed exactly what the content will be. It'll be another version of the particular book I have, but it'll be tapping into this guy's very unique mind. And you would know him in a second. Cool. In the cannabis space, celebrity brands have traditionally not done well. People don't think that the celebrity has anything to do with the product. And there's some other inherent issues like Snoop's brand. It's a cool brand, but 80% of sale of cannabis sales in California are black market. So do you think that Snoop's fans are part of the 20% that buys legal cannabis or part of the 80% that buys black market cannabis? It might be a collectible that someone buys once or twice, but they're just going to go for affordable, high-quality weed ongoing. So, you know, I'm not optimistic. But a newbie, let's say somebody who doesn't really know or hasn't had a chance to try everything, true. walks into a store and goes, oh, Snoop's brand. Yeah, that's probably good. Let's try that. That or may be true. That may be true. For Martha sure. Martha Stewart, you know, oh, Martha, yeah, I know her. It's probably good. Snoop said, I smoke this strain, I would be interested. Again, it's more about the belief that the celebrity has anything to do with the cultivation or the product, are they really just lending their name? It would seem like, as an example, the Grateful Dead would be a great license for cannabis. Probably better license for like bongs and things like that. But you got to imagine Grateful Dead fans have been smoking weed for 40 years and they know what they like. They know what they smoke. They're not going to take the leap that Bob Weir is now creating, growing something in his backyard and they're going to buy it. They might buy it to put it on their shelf but I don't think it would be their regular purchase. I got high with Bob Weir a year ago, and he was smoking a dosist pen, and he was smoking a, <laughs> <laughs> the sleep brand or the my, you know, something really, really mellow. He's like, I just, I can't. We were talking about LSD too, and he's like, yeah, I did that in the 60s, and I really haven't done it much since. I did enough for a lifetime. I believe him. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you think there's a, any connection between tech and cannabis and creativity, that there's a link from, from one to the other? And not just in the experience or in the types of people who are involved in that world, but also in terms of the feeding frenzy. You mentioned the bubble that burst on cannabis. The cannabis bubble burst in December 2019. 2019. So now we feel like, well, maybe it's coming back. There seems to be a lot of interest in it once again because of the potential of it becoming at least accepted nationally. Yeah. Like the internet bubble of 1999, adoption of digital products was up and to the right. And even when the stock market crashed, that didn't change. It kept going up and to the right. Same thing with cannabis. It wasn't really the users of cannabis that, that curtailed. It was the valuations. What happened, again, a perfect analogy almost, these cannabis companies were emerging. There was no real performance indicators. People were just investing in the hope that they would be worth a lot because who's not going to want to smoke legal cannabis? They're already smoking cannabis. The cannabis bubble is very similar to the internet 1999 bubble. The user adoption has not changed. The user adoption is up and to the right in both cases. Cannabis users have consumed more and more cannabis ongoing. It was really the valuations of the cannabis companies that were an issue. People invested in those companies there were no KPIs, key, key performance indicators, and they just hoped that they would be worth a lot. People were investing and the stock just kept going up. Once they started to actually operate, things became pretty obvious that these companies weren't going to be worth their valuation for 10 years. So everything dropped off a cliff, which was good. That has to happen. There was a reset. Things normalized. Great for me launching a cannabis company because a lot of the bravado has gone out. Some of these overpriced companies were overextended. They've fallen out of the market. Less competition. Shelf space is easier. So it's a better marketplace now because of what happened in 2019. And the internet space was enabled by all that bravado and investing. All that fiber was laid and all these companies started and all this technology was developed. So even though tons of people lost tons of money, when it all was said and done, this platform and foundation was there for lots of other companies to build on. And companies like Google launched after the internet crash and so many other great companies emerged since 1999. I was looking at your LinkedIn page, believe it or not. And I'm glad I did because there's a video there from 2004 of you in a panel talking, what is it, um, alternate identities or... Internet personas. Internet personas. And you're sitting there with Mark Zuckerberg and this woman from Second Life and the Reed Hastings from LinkedIn. Reed Hoffman. Reed Hoffman, I'm sorry. Reed Hoffman from LinkedIn. And you were at MySpace at that time. And it's such a great throwback to look at right now because everyone was so optimistic and idealistic about the future of social media and how beneficial it was going to be for the world. And given where we are today and everybody complaining about all those very things that everybody was so optimistic about, how do you feel? Does that have anything to do with your change of direction from tech to something that's a little bit more 
making people's lives better, let's say, cannabis, as opposed yeah. to technology? Well, first of all, I, I look at that video, and it's very depressing. I'm like, which of these two people are billionaires, and two are not? <laughs> <laughs> and if you listen to it, that was my area, internet personas and cultural anthropology. I, I sound like the most informed on the panel, if I remember correctly, but Clearly, that wasn't the long game for success on the internet. So going back to the question. So the question is, how do you feel today about what's happened with social media and, and, and where did it go wrong? And, you know, someone like Zuckerberg, who was, huh. you know, very naive at, at that panel, who was happy that 100 people were in a group. I always like to do things that just haven't done, been done before. If they have been done before, then there's a lot of process systems structure around it. And there's people who are a lot better at that kind of stuff than me. I'm really good at imagining things that haven't been done before and empathizing with a potential customer and, and putting something together. I work with Jason in the beginning of blogs, trying to figure out the blog publishing space, how we integrate advertising in that in a way that adds value to the community as far as detracting. It was early in social media with MySpace. But all those things were about the democratization of information or empowerment of the individual. And they were about helping people and creating a better world. Now, some of those things have gone wrong. You know, the democratization of information has now is all about manipulation of information and fake news. And obviously, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. It's interesting how ignorant, I don't know if ignorance is the right word, naive is maybe a better word. The people who are the founders and I think this is even true with Apple, with the iPhone and apps and each of the developments as they went along, they weren't really thought of in advance. As the product was developing, these other things were started. And I'm sure nobody believed that apps would be like this huge thing today, that everyone would have an app and it would be operating on apps and that the phone would be the primary place to connect with all of that. The founders of this technology have no idea really how it's going to go at the time when they're creating it. They have a very narrow idea and then totally. it takes over somehow. Well, you know, ready, fire, aim is certainly the strategy <laughs> in tech and really entrepreneurialism. Zuckerberg was laser focused on the efficient distribution of information. In the end, that was the right strategy. His lack of empathy cost him a lot of issues along the way. Over and over and over, his lack of empathy created issues. And again, they went back, they put controls into things, and they fixed them. And But it's hard to see that far in the future and see what's going to happen with the technology. Being in this analog space, writing, putting out a book, a journal that you actually write in, as opposed to even an app that you write in, is, is refreshing. And, and I think it's also important for the creative process. We have to get off our computers, PCs, smartphones. I think the analog aspect of the creative process is really important and very different. I personally cannot create as, I wouldn't say efficiently, but as productively if I'm stuck to my iPhone. One, It's just too distracting. There's too many other things that are going to pop in my mind or pop in my face. So sitting with a journal and my mind and some cannabis is you know a pretty linear experience where my mind can kind of wander on its own within itself as opposed to being directed by some device. The charming aspect of the analog experience 
is refreshing and important for a pilgrim soul. So would you say the first step to creativity is put away your phone? <laughs> it's an important step in the process. Coming up with breakthrough ideas, it's important to be really an expert in some kind of domain. And then it's also helpful to have diverse learning. Most ideas, as we all know, come from the edges of the domain, come from when you put two previously existing ideas together in a new way. In all my creative process, I rarely use cannabis when I'm in the research phase. And so the importance of smartphone and computers in the creative process is really the absorption of information. Um, it's You need to be an expert in something to be able to come up with ideas. You need to go deep inside a problem so you can iterate on that problem. But you also need to have diverse knowledge and bring ideas from different domains into that knowledge base to really create new ideas. So the computer and access to digital information is important, but when it comes to idea generation, it's also very important to get away from those devices, sit down with a pen and paper, listen to music or whatever helps you get into your flow state, go on a walk and factually meditate on what's inside your mind. And that's been my process for years. You have Einstein talking about that, Steve Jobs talking about that, Charles Dickens. There's so many creative geniuses throughout history who have used unfocused experiences to generate ideas subconsciously in some sense. Could you think of an idea, your best idea you ever had while you were smoking? I'm trying to think. I, I come up with a lot of taglines for companies while I'm high. It's really factually meditating. There was a company called E-Universe that, that incubated MySpace that I came up with a tagline for, which was contagious entertainment. It was the, all this viral content. We were like the first to really popularize these. This was 19, 2000. Before video on the internet, we had these dancing hamster type content with GIF animations and MIDI files, and they would scroll and you'd share them. And viral was a very bad word back then. People didn't like that word. So like viruses it was related to, not like, you know, for viral content. So I was trying to think of like the, the tagline for this content, which was spiritual and funny and contagious. So I put together like contagious for laughter, contagious as a substitute for viral, entertainment. Anyway, the listeners to your podcast may not think it's so genius, but <laughs> it's it's brilliant, man. That's that's the thing. When you smoke and you always think your ideas are brilliant, and then the next day you wake up and go, "What?" <laughs> that's actually a really good point. Like using cannabis for creativity does not mean that all your ideas will be excellent, but it's better to have ten bad ideas and maybe one good one than it is to have no ideas or maybe two highly inhibited ideas. The important thing is to not email your boss while you're stoned and letting him know that this is a genius idea. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that bit of advice there at the end for our listeners. Thank you very much, Sean Gold, and good luck with Pilgrim Soul. David, thank you so much for having me. Hopefully we got some, some infotainment. Yeah, it'll be great. It'll be contagious, man. <laughs> I got to think of a better. I'm going to come back on for the better one of my okay. better creative ideas next time alright thank you take care man 
You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.